1: The brain is a great goal-seeking instrument. In this episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, I sit down with Adam Hanton. Adam is a principal and VP of behavioral innovation at Ideas2Go, Inc., and a career-long innovation leader and student. He is the co-author of Outsmart Your Instincts, How Behavioral Innovation Approach Drives Your Company Forward. Adam serves client teams' innovation needs across the Fortune 200 in consumer packaged goods healthcare, and finance. Adam and I talk about innovation, cognitive biases, the importance of models without being slavish to the model, and ways that we might overcome our own biases to improve innovation outcomes. We talk about Adam's journey to innovation and the connection to music and practice. I enjoyed Adam's comment that you have to like something enough to be willing to suck at it. If you're looking for ways to be more innovative pay special attention to the DREAM acronym that Adam describes in the interview. It was an honor to have Adam join the podcast. I really appreciated Adam's insights and passion for innovation and the importance of replacing bad behavior in organizations with more positive behavior to enable innovation. Thanks to Adam for joining me. I hope you enjoy the episode. Adam, thanks so much for joining me on the IO idea podcast. It's absolute pleasure to have you here. If you don't mind, uh, for me and the listeners, if you could tell me a little bit about yourself.
0: Uh, Perfect, Matt, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I am a uh, career long innovation dude, uh, having worked on both the client and the uh, agency side, consultant side. Um, I'm a uh, proud father for Proud granddad to two. Uh, I'm a uh, musician for the last forty four years, coming up on forty five years, I guess. <clears throat> um, i'm I, I, I think if there are you know adjectives that kind of boil down my overall trajectory, one would be that i'm, I'm almost pathologically curious. Uh, I <laughs> Uh, I really believe that value is created at, you know, the intersection of, of, of really weird intersections and not just the most obvious intersections. So I really, uh, the, the good news for, for me in innovation is there, I have yet to find anything that I can't figure out how to exploit and bring into innovation. You know, Everything. When you have the, that kind of mindset and that approach, everything is a tool. And, uh,
1: Awesome. Thank. No, that's great there. And there's so much to dig into and unpack. Uh, So again, thanks for for joining us. So on the innovation side, how did you come to innovation or how, how, you know, how did you start a career in innovation?
0: Well, I had, I had always been a creative kid. I was a dork, you know, I, (laughs) I, I I didn't really struggle with that self identity. I thought, well, look, this is my ecological niche and I'm going to, I'm going to fill it well you owned it um i owned it yeah i'm i'm the uh, you know and some of it is you know the more you learn and then you realize maybe you're not uh, quite as special as you, you had hoped you'd been some of this can be really described well by by some of the birth order uh literature i think i'm the last born but there's a huge gap between me and uh number 3 in our family i came i came from a family of four kids as well and um so, in some ways, I have the characteristics of both last borns and firstborns because there's such a big gap. So, um, you know, I was just I was surrounded by all this material. I was in this environment that was designed for people much older than me. And uh, but I mean I didn't know that. And all I knew was, hey, there's this really cool set of books, they're calling it an encyclopedia, whatever uh i'm gonna go i'm gonna go start tearing into that so i started reading the encyclopedia you know at age four and i love the fact that i could go you know from uh you know gooseberry to goiter you know uh, <laughs> you know and just kind of go through it all and i saw i didn't feel any particular impulse to uh, specialize, I didn't, I didn't know, it wasn't clear to me why that would be necessarily a good thing. So I just started doing stuff, you know, and uh, in in terms of the the arts themselves, I first started off um, with the visual arts, and I was, (laughs) I was uh, weirdly a much better uh, artist, visual artist when I was 11 than I am now, because at age 12, I discovered music, and then I went all in on that.
1: So, want to unpack a couple things there. Uh, mentioning theater, for one, and and you and I have chatted in the past. So I don't know if you know, I uh, I used to help run an independent theater company when I lived in Minneapolis. And oh,
0: awesome. Yeah. When I'm,
1: when I'm here, you talk about music, talk about visual arts, encyclopedia, and a lot of things with innovation to me are, uh, it's not having the tool, it's having lots of tools and frameworks to to think about things. and. It's funny because I use I use theater as metaphor as well in in work like even prototyping like, you know, right now we're just doing a read through. Does this even sound like like a good play. All right. Let's think about blocking because especially when you're an independent theater company and you don't have a big building right at your disposal. Wait, somebody was supposed to enter there, but the stage is not a real stage, so will that happen? So you're not surprised at delivery, and I talked about that as, as iteration, but I think it's so critical having multiple models that you can rely on to jump, what do you like from something? Do you, do you see like pulling from music, pulling from art, pulling from biomimicry, right? All these different systems. Absolutely. Right?
0: Absolutely. Well, what you what you want to do is uh, I, I'm, I'm, this quote is coming to me, and I pour, I paraphrase poorly, but the idea is uh, the person who can only speak one language isn't free. The person who can speak multiple languages is much freer, you know, uh, because then you can be discerning and you can kind of go, oh, I have an even better tool that I can reach to for the, for this particular situation. You just you just you just have that kind of that amplitude. Uh, And then hopefully with some wisdom, you know, you don't get into just kind of this uh, kind of goofy show showy eclecticism that, that doesn't really have much coherence to it or anything. So you want to, I I think being able to draw from a lot, it's, it's um, I don't know if you ever saw, I think it was um, might've been IDO who first kind of put up the idea of the T shaped individual. And so there's, this great breadth and and maybe not a whole lot of depth across that breadth, but then at least in one area you have one you really drill down deeply in, into at least one area, uh, and I love that concept because it was totally uh, self-validating and a wonderful exercise in confirmation bias. <laughs> you know, I I uh, I I've never been shy about being a dilettante, and at the same time have realized the importance of becoming really very well versed and very well experienced and and um just having a, a a storehouse of relevant experiences that you could draw upon so innovation is kind of my uh, my 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 descender
1: yeah that that's interesting that you use the the t-shape because i know um a designer i used to work with he would encourage young designers to to build the t and then start to build more of the vertical pillars go deep on another area right and yeah. then Lear- well, learning I, some of those yep
0: i uh i when i'm not being humble i i like to think i'm actually greek letter pi shaped yep so yep. so it's innovation and in music is the other descender
1: <laughs> right right on yeah and i i think when i was exposed to t-shape for me it was um in the when i was working in the knowledge management space like how do how do we collectively create knowledge and share it learn but uh it was the book wellsprings of knowledge uh and the, there was a reference in there to also when Nissan uh felt like they took a jump forward was uh i think they i, I think they called did they call it the hippie nerd was their nickname for their high, <laughs> that they wanted to hire pairs and it was basically getting a designer and a engineer and part of that was when it's going what well, that healthy tension of how can you push the other's boundaries right this is this is a more uh, elegant or appealing look Yet, can, structurally will that hold up will it protect the driver right but uh i think i think that was like where i first came upon that and it, it's it's interesting then both how that model creates a structure where it enables me to see other things and 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 yet then i fear it's also limiting me because sometimes when i have models i think it creates kind of blind spots for me as well because i keep going to a model
0: well, and and so that's not that's, a criticism
1: of the the yeah. team, but
0: well, it, no, I think that, I think that's the the opportunity. Then is as you as you become freer through through having more models or more languages that you can speak, you can actually then start to come up with your own synthesis of some of those. And so, one thing that's also true about me is that I I have a very tenuous relationship with authority. I, I mistrust most authority above me. <laughs> uh and i'm not overly interested in being the authority to other people and so like when i've had when i've had um you know promotions or whatever and i get a job title where uh, people i'm working with assume that they then just instantly have to start deferring to me i i get weirded out you know and, and i go look we yes there is this role i'm feeling just for structure's sake so that we can kind of organize activity and make sure that you know we're getting things done we're on track and everything I said, but I want you to feel full. I, I want you to be impassioned about what you're doing. I want you to have your own vision for what we're doing here. Your vision and my vision, we have to kind of find enough overlap so we can work together. But but uh, that's kind of getting back to models is I've never felt slavish about uh, am I doing a model right? I mean, for me, the test of... Um, the The value of a model is is what I'm the results I'm producing from it, and and if I look at a model and I go, well, hey, I like eighty five percent of it, I'm I've never felt any compunction about messing around with the remaining fifteen percent.
1: Yeah, I love it. it. That's I I use the George Box quote quite a bit. That all models are wrong, some are useful.
0: Uh, absolutely, absolutely. We say this all the time with respect to prototypes. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Uh.
1: Want to jump in a little bit with uh, uh, music. So you said that's kind of one of your other other pillars. Uh, what instrument or instruments do you play?
0: Uh, my only formal instruction was on trumpet. Uh, so I started in, uh, in, we called it junior high back in the day. So yep. in, in, in seventh grade and um, loved it. Just fell in love immediately. I got, that, that may be, when I've been the most competitive, because we had um, we had playoffs every week to see who's going to be first, second, third, fourth chair, whatever. And I was just like, "Well, look, I'm going to be first chair as often as as necessary." Here, had a really great band teacher. It, it was the best junior high band in the state, year on year on year. And at the end of seventh grade, he actually he actually had to audition, and uh, he either got into honor band self-titled obviously yeah. enough uh, or what the kind of the gold and platinum in this scenario the gold was cadet band <laughs> and it was obviously you didn't want to be in cadet band so i took i took my horn home every night i practiced every day for at least 30 minutes on the weekend i'd make sure i practiced for at least two hours and son of a gun if you don't start getting a little bit better from that then they asked me if uh kind of there's kind of a hole in honor band. And so they asked me if I would uh, be willing to take on the tuba. So you're going from the treble clef to the bass clef. You're going from an embouchure, this little mouthpiece to, this, you know, you're flapping your lips. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I kind of dug the ch- And I, I was really kind of honored that they, they asked me to do that and they saw something in me that led them to believe that I could take that on and, and then still play tuba at honor band level. So that was really fun. And that was really digging in quickly and getting after it. But then from that, Matt, you know, the um, within a year and a half of of all that, uh, a bunch of us then got together, a bunch of friends said, hey, let's start a rock band. And of course I wasn't gonna bring trumpet or or tube into that. So we all grabbed whatever instrument we had access to. And my family had this old cheesy old honer organ and a massive Leslie speaker rotating, you know, rotating speaker yep. in a cabinet that weighed about 150 pounds, and so I became key, Keys guys just because I, you know, I had access to it, and so uh, yeah, we just got after it. And we, we, what I've learned in, in the band, in that band in particular, it was so great, is that you, you, you just have to, you have to love it enough to be willing to suck at it, you know, and and you just get. Trend matters so much more than snapshot it 's not how I am right now, but how I am with respect to how I was a, a month ago, and if I can see enough progress to me that's that 's really what it was all about and i, I mean i didn 't have that formulation quite that ironed out in my mind but but I was operating under those principles, and I could just see enough I could see us getting better. you know our first practice was in the basement of the Hansen household. And uh, we just, we did the central theme to uh, the central uh, riff to Inagata De for about two hours. And that was it. That's all we knew how to do, you know, but within, you know, within four months, we were actually playing at um, school assemblies and stuff like that. And then just onward and onward. And, you know, at some point, then you're starting to be the band for dances and all that kind of stuff. So I, uh, I now, I, I'm um, music instrumentally omnivorous, <laughs> and so I, <laughs> I now play uh, a total of about 12 different instruments.
1: Do you, do you have a preference when you're playing playing out, on, or is, is that part of the excitement of moving to instrument to instrument?
0: Oh, usually in playing most of, yeah, by far most of my performing uh, out in public has been on keys. I've done. I did one gig on drums. I did one gig on bass. Um, yeah, and I mean my guitar isn't great. It's de- yeah. it, you know it's, it's decent. I I mean I can play any just kind of root five bar chord hard rock thing that you mm-hmm. know you can you can throw at me. I can do some basic solos and everything. I mean, it, it doesn't hurt to listen to it, but I'm, I'm certainly not a virtuoso with it. Right. But uh, yeah, keys, keys are by far my, my main acts. And I still, I was just at the piano last night for, you know, a good hour. It's just, it's so therapeutic to me. And my wife has been wise to um, say, hey, you haven't played for about a week and you're really getting cranky. Is there some kind of connection there? You know, <laughs> so she's she's always been very encouraging and it's it's been wonderful. And then all of our kids love music. Three of our four kids are actually musical and, and pretty good musicians themselves. And so it's just been, it's been great to, to see that move on.
1: That's awesome. Uh, nothing to do with innovation here, but by curiosity, the, the Leslie uh, speaker, is that still around? Do you still have it?
0: Oh, no. Yeah, man, that's a really good question. What, no, the answer is no. But now I'm wondering, what did we do with that? Because it re- it really sounded great. It was
1: yeah. a pain, it was a
0: pain in the butt to move <laughs> around, and I always felt like whenever we did a gig, that you know, usually people think the drummer has it so hard because there's so many pieces into in a drum kit. I thought, but man, just sheer calories expended in setting up. No one had it as bad as I did.
1: Yeah, uh, thinking about that that setup to then you know maybe it's a twenty minute thirty minute set, right? And <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. It takes it takes longer to set up and do a sound check than right. to the, do the uh, do the gig itself?
1: Yeah. Yeah. As a music nerd, uh, way back when, when we could go to live shows, uh one. But when I when I when I see a Leslie speaker, I always get excited. It's just kind of one of those like, yeah. uh, almost those nerd cues for me. As I just I I love I love the sound and kind of that that oscillation element. That oh, absolutely! It it's
0: it's it's enveloping. It's just yep. really oh, it's yeah, it's really fun. I like. Uh, I'll admit, I like that I can cheat and, and now on my you know. I've got one acoustic piano, but then all my other keyboards, of course, are electronic, and yeah, you, know, you can really replicate the Leslie uh, experience pretty well with them.
1: Without breaking your back. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which becomes increasingly important. Right. Uh, so I uh, want to jump back to some innovation uh, elements. And so I've been, a, we've had some great conversations in the past, and I've been a, a fan of your writing want to uh just highlight for folks listening uh your the the book that you co-authored outsmart your instincts how behavioral innovation approach drives your company forward if you don't mind sharing just the kind of that general premise or thesis and then we can dig in a little bit
0: yeah it's it came from the fact again back to uh my dilettante t-shaped thing um i started really getting into behavioral science about probably 15 years ago or so and I just because I saw kind of some some obvious uh, application to what we were doing in innovation and so you know we we talk about um, how important like one of the first things we stress with our clients when we do training with them is how and most people have heard this and everything they've heard from improv how important it is to to get rid of yes but in improv you say uh, do yes and instead we believe that um, There's actually, we can come back to that, but there's, you can actually take a next step because what yes and doesn't do often enough is acknowledge what's going on with the stuff that isn't working. And you can even use what isn't working as a spur to come up with more ideas. So negativity bias, the moment I heard that term and read what it was, I go, well, yeah, that's what we spent an awful lot of time on. So um, that was kind of obvious. I started using the term negativity bias probably, you know, at least a dozen years ago or so. And then as you de- dive in more into some of the uh, cognitive biases, you know, that, that had been um, identified and against which there'd been, you know, a good research base and everything, you know, you see availability bias, you know, the idea that um, Kahneman, uh, Daniel Kahneman, one of the eminences grees, you know, in the, in the field, his term for availability bias is um, what you see is all there is. And we often act as if that's the case. We make decisions only on what we can most quickly summon um and the idea is that may not really be the best stimuli for your consideration you know and so what we do and then it's obvious to me what we're doing about that we do things called creative excursions when we go into target area ideation Uh, the idea is let's go away from the topic for a moment and find something very different and it can be a long degrees of of um of, of how analogous it is uh, and sometimes you really want to push it. It might be like a really weird stretch, but that's then going to drive more uniqueness if you're then playing with that. If it's something a little closer and that's really going to help, that's really going to boost relevance. Uh, so availability bias is just simply look. In as few as three minutes, you can find other stimuli to bring in and use it and riff off it. You can pick up any extraneous item or in your environment. And hopefully the, the more, the more disparate, the better. So I'm holding a bottle of Purell. Now I could quickly riff off. Pure, if I, if I were trying to come up with new, uh, lunch possibilities, you know, lunch food possibilities, you know, Purell doesn't sound directly. doesn't sound like a very good idea, but I could riff off of, I could do some free association around Purell and I could talk about kind of, um, instant onset of of efficacy i could talk about um you know uh quickly covers everything it needs to i could talk about um uh does its job but isn't harsh you know so efficacy but but still kind of some a pleasant experience with it and everything i can now use any one of those starting points to bring back to lunch food possibilities and And then that 's going to help me jump the tracks rather than just relying on what i 'm going to be able to pull up on my, my own head about it so that 's availability bias, but then we just kind of kept going on and on status quo bias, confirmation bias, et cetera
1: yeah man there's so many different paths i 'd like to take there uh, so <laughs> so one one I want to talk about too is is also that free association with another object because I think it's so it it's like a, it's like a stretching exercise too, for the brain, right? And and for the people in the room. And I know on sometimes even for, for my teams and me, I, it it seems weird, but I'll make people sit in different seats too, just so we're not, we're not viewing the room the same way every time. And, you know, just even changing your perspective on how that can even help.
0: Absolutely. Well, and you know, habituation and automaticity are the killers, Right. And there's a reason why our cognition evolved to, you know, feature both of those and use them well. Much of what we do comes from automaticity. I mean, almost you think of everything you do during the day, uh, decision-making. So most of the decisions we make are so small and automatic that we don't even register them as decisions. And that's a that's great to do. So this isn't, an, this isn't saying that, System one thinking, fast thinking as Kahneman called it, you know, kind yeah. of the emotional reactive, that's not bad. It and, and system two being the opposite, much more deliberate, much more focused, much more cognitively expensive and tiring. Um, you just want to, you want to be able to discern when it'd be helpful to make, you know, make the effort to go into, uh, into the, Cognitively expensive system two type thinking, uh, but then also yeah, even yeah, if you can get even smarter at both, I th- I think that's really great.
1: Thanks. Um, wanted to one of one of the uh, items you talk about kind of related to bias, and and I feel kind of, uh, adjacent to kind of improv, and I do want to jump into improv a little bit more. But the idea of fourness. yeah. Do you mind Do you mind talking a little bit about that and the power? Yeah, of absolutely. It?
0: Yeah, thank you. So this it stems from the same idea about getting rid of of yes, but. And so, uh, you know, <laughs> ban the yes, but. What we know there from psychology is if you want to make change, you don't ban behavior, you replace behavior. And so what we say is uh, what you really want to do is you want to use any idea. You want to exploit it. You want to just get mercenary with ideas. You want to use everything you can in an idea including the facets of it that may not be all that great. You really don't like, you know, cause that's, that's information. That's telling you something. Right. So what we ask you to do first is go to what you're for in a, in an idea, what is good about it? What you like about it? What's cool about it, potential benefit, you know, and, and then importantly, what's the potential that you start to see if you'll play with that idea some more. Uh, and then on the other side, it's not, what, it's not what you're for and then what you're against, but it's what you're for. And then on the other side is what you wish for. And so that's forness because you're saying for, for and wish for. And so take now the things that aren't working for you and don't don't just comment on, I don't like that, but take prime your mind with sentence stems like, I wish for, I wish to, how might we, what if we. And now you're even using the deficiencies in the idea um to come up with more thought not to shut down thought because our react reactivity when we're just again kind of in this system one automaticity is we'll just go straight to what isn't working and again you see it all the time and we can't avoid that i mean that we come by that honestly but just because that's our impulse doesn't mean that we have to stay with that you know and so forcing yourself to go first to what you're for then when you come to what isn't working as well, and you have these sentence stems, I wish to, I wish for, how might we, what if we, et cetera. Now, because you first went to what you're for, your brain is actually in a much more resourceful state to take on the other side of it. And now you can generate maybe as many ideas out of the wish for side as you did on the for side, you know, because it's it's really... You you wish for something because you have intuitions that values aren't being addressed, or that there's just additional opportunity that we're not paying enough attention to. So yeah, great. Go Thanks. go with go with that impulse.
1: Yeah, and I feel I feel that is like you know, str- you had mentioned improv, strongly related to improv. And I've yeah, um, uh, I actually uh, have design teams do improv exercises periodically yeah. and and warm ups and. Uh, you know, we do talk about yes, and uh, one of the ones, though, that, that kind of stealing from Disney, my understanding is Disney creative team, some early Imagineers was yes, if, um, and Oh, that's cool. And that frame was so that they could uh, also express their concern. and.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, very much.
1: Yeah, and the model I heard was, it was basically Dis- Disneyland, original Disneyland, uh, Walt wanted live animals like and they have animal kingdom <laughs> now but uh, apparently the yes if was basically yes if the animals don't die in front of our guests yes <laughs> it could be safe enough and that and so the engineers were able to say you know on this experience i'm deeply concerned because i don't think we can take care of these animals uh in anaheim right like from all over the world yeah uh and so but they talked about that and then the the disney example then extends it that kind of the idea of all well there's still things there with this this magic or uh just epic nature of of the animals and uh but that's where they settled on the animatronics and you know and then Ah. and then what that did for disney went other things but if we you know it was the thought maybe we maybe we can get a little bit of that feeling and still have the safety so yes if it's not the same as yes and, but that's that's one that I've I've found uh, powerful, uh, and and we were also against the the uh, the butt. Although I will, well, a friend of mine uh, on the butt side, uh, we call it the sexy butt. Uh, when <laughs> when we're doing interviews with folks uh, like customers, trying to get to what do they see as friction points, and then when you hear their butt statement, you uh, know it's like I know I should work out more, but I don't have time but uh i have chronic back pain you you hear yeah, that yeah. but then you're like okay how might we address that right and then that that becomes a an opportunity target but, but yeah i it can,
0: it can be yeah absolutely it, it really it's look any uh, anything, anything that happens has no inherent valence really it's what you do with it it's what you choose to do with it right and so um anyone expressing I'd like this, but that's always going to be an opportunity. That's always good. let's say, oh great, okay, let's get to work on that. What I love about our brains, our brains are are uh, do two things exceptionally well. They are they're meaning making machines uh, through through analogy. That I mean, that's yeah. primarily like when I learn something new, the first thing my mind does is go what is this most like that where I already have kind of some structure? you know? What
1: mental hook do I have to hang that on? Yeah,
0: exactly. And then the other thing is that it's, um, we're, I think it's kind of as deeply patterned as well as, is the brain is a great goal seeking instrument. So when you put up, when you take challenges and you don't just say, oh, that's not good because of X, Y, and Z, you take X, Y, and Z and say, how to, how might we, yes, if we, yeah. you know, uh, and another stem that, we, that I really love is what would need to be true for this to happen, you know, that kind of thinking. Uh, and then you don't just accept how things are, because you know from your own experience that you can take things and go, oh, okay, there, this isn't quite where it needs to be. But I I'm, can start thinking, I can be thoughtful, I can, I can be intentional now about what would need to be true for this to get to where it should be for me. Uh, And we're very good at that. And we've been doing it since we were, you know, toddlers.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's funny too, when, uh, just the idea for me of organizational folklore, when you find that people, they've kind of uh, almost automated some behavior, uh, but when the world has changed, you know, and there's the old story of grandma, always used to cut the end off a ham. (laughs) But when you ask grandma, why did she do that? Well, it was because I never had a pan big enough. So to write, somebody thought it it, it helped the cooking. And uh, so sometimes in organizations too, just poking at like, do you know why you do that? And a lot of times things were done because there might've been a technical constraint at the time. And if that's been alleviated, you know, now what might we do if, and, but it's that, that behavior because that, that kind of, system 2 thing it is exhausting it can be exhausting for folks and it's like a muscle right it it, it gets it really is. if you don't work out you're going to get exhausted faster right but uh, absolutely when they're well, just... and the, the example ahead,
0: ahead. the example we use for that is is um you know it, we assume most of our clients when we're doing training have been uh, at some point in their life did drivers ed and you remember what that first experience was pulling onto a freeway. You know, you first started off just kind of going around town and very right. quiet streets where there wasn't any traffic or anything. But man, that first time you pull onto a freeway, I ask everyone in the room, I say, show me what the look was on your face. And everyone instantly goes to this. The eyes become much bigger. And what, what is happening is that you're you're pressing all your senses to full vigilance. Like you are just like, you're on total alert. And that's why fifteen minutes—the uh, fifteen minutes—the first time in driver's head on the freeway—is absolutely exhausting, and it's—you know—you don't really understand that until you do something like that. You know, back when I was learning piano, I remember this one song we were trying to prep, and there was this ridiculous little eight-bar, eight-measure sequence that on tape because this is the old day, and I have a boombox yeah. on top of the piano and everything. Uh, Eight measures, I, I, it, it could not have been more than 20 seconds. Uh, I would just play it, do what I could, re- rewind, play again. It took me two hours to learn that eight measure sequence. Uh, and now, I mean, I just, look, the, the, my musical talents are essentially brute force applied over 44 years, <laughs> you know? And, and so now if I hear a song once and I'm, I'm I'm thinking, oh, I want to play this. I I have to pay attention to it, certainly. But if I hear it once, I can probably get pretty close to pulling it off if I sit down. And usually I can have it down probably within about 10 minutes. Uh, but that's that's it. It's going from real effort, real effort to more, more automation, more automation, more automation. And so with the driving example, we've all had the experience of driving Sometimes for over a half hour, and going, hey, where was I? Like I, I wasn't even, right. I wasn't paying attention, and yet I wasn't imperiled because of that. I mean, I was still doing everything I needed to and everything, all those behaviors, everything I need to need to do to to get where I need to go safely, has been automated, you know. And so it, it's not tiring anymore.
1: Yeah, that it's it's funny, um, and I can't remember where where I heard this example, but it it, it feels true to me kind of related to that is, when you're doing business travel, right, and you're out of your house, just how fatiguing the first few hours of the day are, because you're waking up (laughs) in a hotel, right, your toothbrush is in a different place, do I have coffee available to me, My (laughs) my routine has been broken, and then I may have to get in a rental car, and now I have to figure out like, where where do all these buttons work? You know, versus my car yeah. and the amount of mental energy you're expending there versus like when you're in part of your daily routine where I don't have to I don't have to exhaust any energy on knowing where my bathroom is at home, my toothbrush, et cetera.
0: And and we don't we don't sufficiently account for all that. And and so one of the things that's been interesting about adapting to, you know, business during COVID is uh, we instantly went into all online projects and and it was great but what was weird to me and now looking back on it it should have been pretty obvious what was going on but like why was i so exhausted doing these day-long sessions on zoom when usually if i had to go in person to our office i had to get up at 5 30 i wanted to leave the house by 6 15 so that i didn't you know get the worst of traffic uh, I could get in there, I could get everything set up. I felt great when clients and our creative consumers came in, I was ready to rock, all that good stuff. You know, here I could sleep at least an extra hour, if not an hour and a half. You know, I'm here at home, my commute is 45 steps, you know, and yet by the end of the day, I was just absolutely drained. And I that that was really interesting to me. So I went to work on trying to figure out what's going there. And it's precisely that. I'd been um we had been so ripped from our base of habit and and comfort and and all those even non-conscious hacks that we had developed you know that would 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 even be hard to identify because they were down at really at the non-conscious level and uh so yeah that's what's going gone. so it makes me wonder if we keep at this for a while i'm imagining I won't be as tired at the end of the day. I, right. I, I will become much more habituated. There is the other thing, though, that I heard, just kind of a nerd note <clears throat> the distance that we see from each other, um, usually throughout our history, that's been either, hey, we're about, we're going we're, to, two options for us right now, we, we're going to make out or we're going to fight. <laughs> <laughs> and so there is still this kind yeah. of like that you know, there's still that kind of that design affordance, right? Right. That's what we're used to. That's what that kind of distance. This
1: proximity is feeling a little bit weird. Like I have to navigate that. Yeah. (laughs) One of my design friends, we were talking about Zoom fatigue as well. And one of the other things we were wondering is um, every time I'm on a Zoom meeting, I also see an image of me that's getting projected. And when I'm in a room, I'm not as self-conscious about, right? It's, it's less stuff that I have to, so this, this cycle that I'm also kind of self monitoring. Uh, we, we were wondering if that's that, but yeah, cause we're trying to dig into, into that. And another thing that I was wondering too, is this, this frame, right? Just the, the bezel of my monitor is what I see where I'm, especially workshops where I'm used to just drifting off to the side, another side, just looking, are, how are people doing? What are their non-verbals? Yeah. Uh, and Especially like kind of stereotypical workshop environment, you know, when when something seems a little bit challenging jumping on a whiteboard jumping up to the post it sheets, just drawing another picture to see if it helps and then In zoom. Wait, I got to take my turn. All right. Is it is it okay if I share my screen. Oh, wait, I don't have sharing privilege. Can somebody give me sharing privileges. All of these extra steps to get an idea out where like in, in your traditional workshop environment, let me just hop up with a marker, boop, boop, boop. Oh yeah, that's
0: Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, I wanted to speak just quickly about your your thing about, um, you're not just seeing the other people, but you're seeing yourself as well. Yeah. So Dan Coyle wrote a really great, he wrote the talent code, which was great, and, and then the culture code. And in the culture code, he talks about, that there was an um, experiment, um, two groups. So, so first all, I'll tell you what the task was it was, I can't even remember what all the, well, what all the uh, items were, but you have, you know, you have paper, you have tape, you have uh, toothpicks, you have, you know, th- several items. Um, the challenge is to build as tall a structure as you possibly can. The only real real rule that has to go with that is that you have to place this marshmallow on the top of it. And, um, So they did this research, I think, in four different countries with two groups, uh, kindergartners and MBA students. And the, the first thought most people would get to, well, of course, the MBA students just crushed it. They actually videotaped everything so they could see the interaction in the group and everything as well. What turned out in every country is the kindergartners kicked the MBA students' butts. And what the the main reason was the MBA students were losing so much energy to status management. And it's like, am, how am I being thought of? How am I being seen? Am I, you know, am I, am I, am I, am I? Whereas the kindergartners would just jump in there and they'd get shoulder to shoulder and they'd just start trying stuff. And they, they really weren't all that concerned with how they looked to their peers. And so it's, that's, so you really want to, the net from that is, um, how do you create an environment where it, it kind of gets back to psychological safety? You don't have to worry so much about status management. You can just do good work. You know, there, there will be uh assessment of you at the right time, but for right now, let's just get to dang work and, and, you know, and really get after it.
1: Yeah. Cause I'm finding so much power in, that's making me think of like just being your authentic self, if you yeah. can relax and where yeah. I'm seeing so much power in, Diversity and inclusion movements is uh, the inclusion is also making it safe, encouraging yeah. people, and uh, so that yeah that I and I, I love the 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 kindergartner MBA kind of uh, uh, <laughs> comparison there. Want to ask you about and forgive me because I might not be able to tie it to the 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 right bias, but can you talk to me about the bias at play in in the the notion or metaphor of we're always fighting the last war?
0: Uh, I'm even now trying to remember, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind, and I hope I got this right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um,
0: well, I mean, what's, what's behind that is, um, path dependence, right? You know, the idea that, um, you know, the cow paths of two centuries ago at some point then become the superhighways. And that, that's what right. like this, that's what this has described Boston <laughs> you yeah, know, forever, Right. you know, um, and, and so I think, it, I think it's probably the bias that it's most closely associated with. It's probably a combination of both status quo bias and confirmation bias. Uh, that we don't, you know, it's kind of like um, something Elon Musk said around the idea that said, look, if it's, not, if it's not tied directly to one of the five basic forces of physics, we can play with it. We can monkey with it. Everything else is an assumption. Everything else is something else that another human or a group of humans came up with. And it was probably adapted for a very particular context and that's no guarantee that it's especially helpful for our current context, you know? And so we ought to be, we ought to feel free to play with this. Now, what I would say, we find that what's really helpful is when you're, when you're trying to create change and you have kind of that, you know, you're thinking of the previous war and everything you did there. um, There's a certain part of your understanding. There there was some knowledge gained there that, that could be helpful. So it's not like you throw everything out, and we actually have a change model, it's an acronym uh, that's called DREAM, which says, look, take your starting point, the last war, whatever, and now pay attention to what's going on now, if there's anything different, whatever, and ask yourself uh, from DREAM, what would you D delete what would you just get rid of entirely? Uh, What's there, but you wanna dial it down, so what would you R-reduce? what's there but you want to dial it up and so you would e enhance and then what's now for this new context and where we're going now what's missing entirely that we ought to a add uh and then the m is the maintain and then there's certainly going to be some things that we do want to maintain we still feel are going to be relevant we still want to at least get them on the checklist you know at least kind of say okay what do we need to do about this if anything uh, and so, change doesn't always have to be wholesale, and, and effective change rarely is. Um, effective change is focusing on those facets of the experience that have lost relevance, that that um, have just never had to be thought of in this new way because we we never had that context, we didn't have those environmental factors, whatever
1: that right. was. Right? Yeah, because I, I'm a big. You know, big fan of trying to help clients to understand context matters, and oh, so absolutely, <laughs> it's one. It's one of the thing. One of my criticisms of sometimes when when there's case study examples, and then somebody thinks that case is that that's the way you go, and I'm, it was that was for a particular context, and we still don't quite know the exact frame that was set for for that, right? Uh, and and the 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 war example though that I I wanted to just because for me i i love the i love the example but the maginot line in yeah and right it was france's reaction to germany from world war 1 and they didn't want to get rolled over on that the, the border and they build and spend a lot of money on this huge infrastructure and part of what i love as well france has border so they they can't encircle germany right and so but <laughs> but then the the context between world war 1 world war 2 is the like quick changes in air force right so yeah. <laughs> so a ground Oh yeah, is like a,
0: absolutely. Yeah. The, so so what comes to mind here is, um, you know, uh, Joe Hendrick did a really great book on. He, the, the question he had in his mind is what when it comes right down to it, what is it that separates us from other animals? The name of the book is The Secret of Our Success. And yes, of course, it makes you think of a bad Michael J. Fox movie from the eighties. <laughs> uh, but He cited a study that uh, was done in Germany, of course, uh, where they took uh, a a chimpanzee, an orangutan, and a two-year-old human toddler. And they tested them on four different types of intelligences, see if I can get them right, quantitative, uh, spatial, causal, and social intelligence. And the toddler and the chimp were right there together on quantitative, causal, and spatial. The orangutan, not too far behind. And again, this is a two-year-old.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. you know,
0: it, it makes it so you can actually get something that's fairly close, actually uh, com- comparable. Uh, but then where the, even the two-year-old human just burst out of, the, out of the scene was on social intelligence. And so uh, he, um, Joe Henrik goes on to kind of flesh this out and, and shows that social intelligence, or another term for that really is culture is our superpower and part of that is so the studies have shown that even um pre-verbal pre-crawling six-month-olds can learn from each other isn't that crazy i mean is that that's and 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 what the 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 what's happening there really is is kind of it's blind copying and so you want to you understand that's our blind copying is our default mode now i'm tying this back this is my yeah Going around the Cape of Good Hope to go up to Tahiti to get the breadfruit (laughs) on the uh, on the on the on on the case study example. Yeah. And so, blind copying on case studies is not the point. You you want to see okay, it informs you, it gives you some sense of how it went this one way under those conditions and everything. But what you want to I think approach more examples uh, as would be as articles of experimentation, not Doctrine, and so the more and more we can give people these articles of experimentation. Hey, here it, it's you know you can think of it maybe it's along the lines of heuristics. It's it kind of goes in that direction. It it's going to help you. It's going to explain seventy percent of what's going on. It's going to explain maybe at best eighty percent of what's going on. So you you know it'd probably be wise to at least play with it and learn from it and see what you can do with it. But you need not follow it hundred percent. Because it's not, it's not going to be adaptive. Because there are enough things that are different that you must account for. Because context
1: matters. Yeah, yep. yeah. The uh, the uh, the notion. Uh, one one thing I wanted to pick from early in our conversation was uh, when when we were talking about also almost cognitive or or blind spots that we might have. And I don't know if you're familiar with. Uh, Kenneth Burke he was a philosopher and so he was I was exposed to him from the community oh I might have yeah and I think a was lot of liberal was he a Brit li- was he a Brit I believe he was American okay he talks yeah. about like a, a dramatistic cycle about how we we are in a generally we start in a, a perfect state but then there's pollution and the the way that humans respond to that pollution is either by uh kind of uh uh punishing ourselves or kind of excuse making. And then that purifies, it's just like purification cycle. But one of, one of the big things I took away from from his work is basically we see the world through terministic or linguistic screens. And oh, if wow. we don't have a word for it, it doesn't exist. So thinking about the metaphors and how you can extend. And for me, I was thinking like as a kid, I had eight Crayola colors, right? And then then my friend, who, who, you know, his his parents spent more money <laughs> on their school supplies. <laughs> he had a box of 32 crayons. Holy crap. <laughs> and then I'm like, blue, green. There's a color between blue and green. <laughs> and then there was green, blue. And then it's okay. So, right. But you start, it's like, so then like, even the way you might describe colors becomes richer and more specific. But it, I've always found that like, if you don't have words for it, it's really hard to see. And also if, If experiences for organizations, right, if they don't view the world this way, I've always, uh, as an Iowa Hawkeye football fan, uh, the the coach of the offense is usually very conservative. Iowa football is very conservative. And sometimes I think when a trick play is pulled, especially like a fake punt against Iowa, I think a lot of it, they never practice it because they don't, they don't do a lot of fake plays. And so how do they even watch for a fake punt? They've never seen it. And the team yeah, is usually I, caught off guard by it.
0: Absolutely. And so it, it comes, it comes to mind that, um, you know, how you think about black swans, how, how you think about just that, the totally stochastic stuff that could happen. It's, it makes me think of how, you know, in any good financial portfolio, you're going to have a chunk that's very safe, may or may not be municipal bonds, whatever, but you want to have at least part of your portfolio in that. You're not going to get a great return, but it's not going to go away either. Hopefully. Um, But then you move on. You have, you know, most of your investments should probably be kind of in the middle, which are a little riskier, but with the, with the real expectation of a greater return. And then you ought to have anywhere from five to 10% of your investments in truly out there stuff. Because who knows, and the fact is it's kind of like how venture capitalists think about um, where they 'll invest. they only need to have one out of every ten things they invest in hit right and that's our, that's our expectations, and so what it allows is kind of this freedom and and again experimentation and trying things, and still you have to you have to make sure that the uh, what's going on there is you know it's, it's smart it's responsible and everything, but you're deliberately taking on more risk and the the thing that that occurred to me, and part of this is, you know, all advice is autobiography, right? You know, and so, right, right. right. I I I, uh, I interned at at uh, this this little company called Kodak uh, back in the the late uh, Pleistocene era, and uh, you know, this was the summer of eighty eight. Okay, so you can do the math. You can start to land That's on it. how how ancient I am. Yeah they already had a digital photography group because of course they invented digital photography.
1: Yep. And,
0: yep. and, um, and most people forget that Kodak actually led in consumer digital photography. If your first digital camera, if you started buying cam- uh, digital cameras back in the early nineties, the market share leader was by far Kodak. I mean, it took even a while for Canon and, and some of the others to come on board. Much less now it's in your phone. But um, uh, they were, sit- because of silver halide photography, they were obscenely profitable. They were sitting on such a mountain of cash that um, there's no reason why they couldn't have funded 20 separate big enough experiments to see where this could go. They had the opportunity to buy HP, which they considered for a moment because they thought, okay, we lost silver halide, but we want to keep the paper and, and kind of the output and the finishing part of the business. So they were thinking of buying HP just for the printer division. Right. Yep. And then of course, over time, people came to realize that, Hey, we don't, need, we don't especially need physical output of our, our photos and we're happy to keep it all digital and everything. But so what this comes to is all, almost all like I, it's rare to find the risk discussion, talking at all about the risks of omission and they're strictly about the risks of commission and the risks being discovered at the board level in every company is, I just wonder how rare it is that anyone's bringing up, Hey, why are we not sufficiently freaked out by what we're not doing? Right. You know, right. And, and being smart about that. And you understand why that happens. Again, we have this loss aversion that that's just, it's part of our cognitive fabric and part of our emotional makeup. Uh, but it's back to you know this idea of outsmart your instincts. That's your instinct, but you you probably ought to outsmart it and see, aren't there ways for us to amplify the risk discussion to risks of omission as well? And let's get some more smart experiments going. And let's let's not just focus the, the thing about risks of commission also is they're all you know, they're all the rearview mirror. Yeah. You know, and so I would just say, I would say contrary to expectation is that most businesses aren't sufficiently risk averse. It's just that the risk aversion is so lopsided uh, and they're not, they're apparently through their actions they're not concerned at all about the risks of omission. And when you look at Kodak, Nokia, uh, Research in Motion, you know, Blackberry and just kind of go down the list. I would argue that it wasn't the risk of commission that did them in. It was pretty clearly to me the risks of omission that just cr- cratered these massive multi-billion-dollar concerns.
1: I love it. I, and one of one of the, just a, a couple quick things on that is one is I've used Kodak a lot, not as as elegantly as you. But one thing I've I've is a lot of times they saw the world as a chemical processing issue, right? And chemical engineers were really important. And on the human side, though, it was sharing stories, right? So you're looking at yes. like how how might I better curate and share memories. right? Yeah. So, But I, I love, I love the, the detail and depth that you provide. I really appreciate that because uh, that helped me understand it more. One of the things, and, and pardon me, I had to grab my phone because a friend of mine who's a microbiology researcher, uh, best friend from high school, and uh, one of the things he, he said, he sent me something interesting statistics slash calculation uh, from New England Journal of Medicine. Time for humans to evolve 1% 8 million years, time for an (laughs) RNA virus to evolve 1% two to three days.
0: Ah, (laughs) well, so what's, what's the rule of evolution? It's not the strongest or the fastest. It's, it's, it's that, that uh, species, which is most adapted, which can most adapt to the environment. So yeah, we're screwed.
1: But (laughs) so yeah, to your, to your point too about smarting our instincts in the context and also when the world was less interconnected, less complex, right. The humans did a great job of adapting and the brain designed to, I'm not going to get eaten by that tiger, or I'm going to, I'm going to go over here where the weather might be more hospitable, or if I can't, I'm going to figure out ways. Right. But then, then when things change faster than we can't, like how, how do we, you know, like you said, outsmart our instincts. So.
0: Yeah. And, and as, as you're talking about this and what's, what we can do, what we have at our disposal is our, is our, innovative capability in our thinking and and um we've shown certainly as far as we can understand better than any other species that um our thought process actually can affect physical structures meaning just even the vision to build something but also like i like um neuroplasticity can be driven by attention by thought by focused you know like directing what you're doing neuroplasticity if i if i choose to meditate and i and i i become just enough disciplined you know all these fleeting thoughts are going to come up at some times but i can become better and better and just going okay that's great let's come back in you know and they're actually then fmri uh structural changes you know and so it's it's uh that's, I think that's absolutely wonderful. Uh, a thought from uh, integral theory, one of the the sayings that I, I really enjoyed in my study of that is, you know, the higher that we climb, the more the ladder sways. And so uh, you you <laughs> want to, yes, we there is more at risk now because we couldn't have even been in the position to suffer from <laughs> those risks before, but you're making the bet that whatever kind of progress you're making upward, more than compensates for that. But the idea that progress is just this, you know, unimpeded straight line is just, it's clearly BS. Yeah, you know, we, we, yeah. but hopefully with that, we, we pick up uh, a bigger toolkit, we become even better, you know, um, all the, uh, you're familiar with them, you know, kind of the Thomas Malthus, the Malthusian Spectre, and that you know population grows geometrically and and agricultural production just goes linearly therefore everyone's you know we're going uh, most of us are going to die from hunger within yeah. x years and then of course what that didn't account for is human ingenuity and breakthroughs right. and and so yeah you 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 figure out a way of getting past that specter
1: uh one one last uh Common, I have like some of our overlapping areas of of design and innovation. But are you familiar with uh, Damian Newman's design squiggle? I am. Uh, well, I can imagine what it is, but tell me. No, I'm not. Yeah. So the the folklore on it, 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 you know, it might be apocryphal, but it was uh, 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 Newman. His firm was getting engaged to submit a proposal for design, but you had to lay out your design process. <laughs> so he 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 draws this just squiggly line. And where it looks like you know, if you go left to right, you're going back. It's going to be frustrating. It eventually becomes this straight line. And when, yes. you, when you zoom out, you can see like a funneling pattern. But Abs-
0: right. absolutely.
1: But when you're in it, it feel it can be frustrating. So I love to overlay that uh, on project plans when I'm presenting to clients. And and it's going to feel like, you know, did we understand the problem? Are we going to have to backtrack? Are we going this way that way for a while? But when you zoom out. It feels a little bit more safe, but
0: I, I, that's absolutely right. And I, 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 like to think about that as um, it's for me, it gets back to curiosity and it's about asking questions and I asked this question and in answering it, if you, if you kind of use the metaphor of kind of, you know, uh, distance advancement or, you know, kind of physical advancement along a vector. So I answer that. So now I'm here, but because I'm here now, I have a different vista. And so right, now, right. now I have a new set of questions that couldn't have occurred to me earlier because they, they just weren't available to me, yep. you know? And so with that, yes, we have to account for that. And if, if the design process were just this, you know, this plumbed, you know, line, uh, that's not all that interesting. And that's right. not, and, 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 and then that's just like such an algorithm that um, there would be no reason to choose one group or another over another to do that work.
1: That's a great point. Thank you. Adam, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thanks so much for taking the time and sharing your perspective and gifts. I I just loved the conversation. So thank you for for joining me.
0: Matt, thank you so much. We all need more rich, generative (laughs) conversations, man. Life is too short. More. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Awesome. Have a fantastic day, my friend. Thanks so much, Matt. Take care.